0: this is the mg car club podcast with wayne scott and adam Sloman. on this episode we speak to the son of morris toolman who was the driver of one of the cream cracker works mg trials cars plus we celebrate the mg zt 260 the mg car club podcast well hello and welcome to another mg car club podcast wayne scott with you here in our first podcast in december and adam you're still at home
1: yep still at home uh back in the bedroom once again uh with the restrictions in lockdown literally ending at midnight today um we are in a tier two area Uh, Here in the Cotswolds, which means the advice from our uh, government is to continue to work from home. So that's what I'm doing. So uh, welcome back to the bedroom.
0: Yeah, we're still working from home, but it affects us not because the beauty of this podcast is we can talk to you, the members, anywhere in the world. And uh, well, we can just uh, bring the MG world together through the wonders of technology. And as it's December now, we can finally start the countdown to Christmas. It feels like the countdown to Christmas started the moment summer ended in august (laughs) Um, i think it's anyone's holding on to anything to look forward to at the minute but um i know that you've been busy in the countdown to christmas adam uh, building uh, well a new village tell us more
1: well yeah um for the last couple of years um i have been uh, building a christmas village uh here at home every every christmas it's something my dad Used to do um, many moons ago when I was a when I was just a wee lad, um, and yeah, it's just a, a tradition that I've sort of carried on. And every year I, I add a few more buildings to it. It's getting quite big now. Um, it's uh, it's almost to the point where it's almost too big. Um, but yeah, every year I put my village together, and and every year all the all the cars in the village are MGs. Um, even to the point that there is a little blaze orange BGT parked outside the pub um which i always like to say is is my late dad enjoying a, a gin and tonic on his way home from uh, from work so yeah so my christmas village is is well and truly set up marvellous if you want to see pictures of the mg bgt
0: outside the pub you can have a look on our facebook page at the moment the mg car club but uh, official facebook page will put pictures of adam's little village up there and that's the great thing about christmas
1: isn't it it's all about family traditions definitely i mean the kids love it they get they get properly excited when everything comes out the loft and you know we work out where the cars are going to go and what the layout's going to look like and then i get stressed because they're trying to move stuff and it's not where i wanted it and uh, yeah it's all good fun
0: (laughs) (laughs) well of course it's also about shopping as well and dealing with the stress of the high street but luckily you don't have to do any of that and mg car club members because we've got you covered we've got loads of gift boxes currently online at shop.mgcc.co.uk if you click on the christmas gifts button on the shop there you'll find all of our uh, pre-packaged but beautiful gift sets that we've put together for you just to uh, ease the burden of shopping really because lockdown has meant everything's been compressed into now the last few weeks before christmas i know the team at kimber house are nipping in despite uh, uh, everyone trying to work from home they are keeping the shop running like little heroes they're like our own mg christmas elves and uh, we will make sure that those uh, gifts get out before christmas so they're all working hard support them by buying some stuff from the shop basically shop.mgcc.co.uk is where to go you'll see all of the christmas gift ideas on there at the moment talking of christmas gifts i I still need to go shopping for you adam because we have a bit of a challenge set for each other don't we Uh, i don't think we've talked about this yet on the podcast but uh, we have set each other a challenge and the outcome of that challenge will be our christmas special so let's set this up let's explain what we're trying to do and perhaps some of the listeners can give us some ideas on some weird and wacky presents
1: that's a good idea so you know everyone loves a christmas special um and we thought we ought to do one here on the podcast so our challenge is to find the weirdest um and most unusual mg related gifts that you could buy um all of our stuff in the shop is is kind of you know traditional um, quality stuff whereas you know if you look around the internet and some weird wonderful corners of ebay and things like that i am sure there are some frankly bizarre mg related uh gifts and and presents um so yeah so our challenge uh is to find each other a couple of uh, weird and wonderful mg gifts to open with a with a mince pie and maybe even a glass of sherry let's keep it clean as well guys because we're gonna to have to model these gifts and we're going to uh,
0: we're gonna to have to take pictures of them i don't want to see adam in an mg g-string frankly and no one needs to see that in their life uh and certainly no mg condoms or anything like that thanks very much but sensible ideas for mg <laughs> gifts uh, get them into us you can contact the podcast via mgpodcast.uk and fill out the contact form there, or of course, you can leave us a voice message as well. As many of you do, uh, it's very easy to get in touch, uh, but uh, what's not so easy is finding these weird and wacky gifts. So, uh, help us out, we'll go and buy them so you don't have to, <laughs> and um, we'll find out what weird and wacky MG Christmas gifts are lurking out there on the internet and in shops. If you spot something when you're out and about, let us know as well take a picture send it via the contact form at mgpodcast.uk and i'll get shopping to see if i can find anything weird for you adam which is a disturbing thing for me to say and to think about frankly <laughs> i look forward to it mate i look forward to it also we were talking a few weeks ago about the nec classic motor show which happened uh, virtually via facebook in the middle of november it's usually the big season ender for the classic car community this year we weren't able to be together in the halls of the national exhibition center in birmingham but something that was missing from the virtual proceedings of the nec classic motor show was the classic and sports cars club awards now they're run by classic and sports car magazine and they have become a bit of a mainstay really of that nec classic motor show it's an opportunity for a lot of the clubs to get together to network mainly it's an opportunity for a good old beer up frankly and to treat the volunteers who have been working on the stand to a bit of a night out that's what most people do classic and sports car did put on a virtual award ceremony for us all this happened on the first day of december december the 1st via youtube you can still watch it now via the news pages of mgcc.co.uk we didn't quite get the win did we adam but we were mentioned for a couple of awards and that was for our mg social event at the british motor museum at gaydon and also uh, for club of the year where they gave us a heads up for being 90 this year and also for uh, the activities that we've put on despite COVID although we were beaten by another club that's only done 19 podcasts i was a little injured by that but uh, well <laughs> well done alfa romeos uh, all the same but um yeah it was nice to get some recognition as finalists in the awards wasn't it
1: yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, it's 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 always good to get that recognition. Um, I, I won't lie; I was disappointed that we didn't we didn't win anything because, as a club, we have sort of received some some quite nice recognition certainly since twenty seventeen in terms of you know award wins, be it the, um, the 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 much missed car club awards which used to take place in March and and the classic and sports car awards where we won um, an award for our stand at the NEC last year. Um, so it's always nice to it's lovely to be shortlisted it's even better to win an award but congratulations to all those guys who uh, who did come away with a, with a nice little bit of silverware because like you say it's recognition for the volunteers up and down the country that, that make this club and every club what they are to their members so um so yeah disappointed but but nice to be uh nice to make the shortlist
0: it's interesting as well because it was quite telling on how the club landscape is changing one of the awards i think it was the social media award went to essentially a facebook page that had been set up by adam gompertz the um chaplain of Bista heritage um and Just to see the fact that a Facebook page set up by an individual to share videos and uh, content from the classic car community, and great, fantastic platform that that it is, it was just interesting to see that that is now considered a club, whereas you and I would probably consider that a Facebook page, a social media campaign. Um, Interesting how the landscape is changing, isn't it? And the definitions of what a car club actually are, are changing with it.
1: Yeah, it does raise the question of, of what is a club. Um, you know, I saw it in my younger days um, when I was sort of in and around the mini scene. Um, you know, down in down in the West Country, there seemed to be a mini club, um, as you know, as much as there are like little football clubs up and rugby clubs up and down the country, um, with no one really paying any membership fees or, or no structure. Um, you know, what what makes a club a club these days? You know, you can look on Facebook and find hundreds of of owners groups and owners clubs and car clubs and you know what 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 makes a club is is a big question that um all of us that that work in this industry and it is an industry um have to sort of try and answer
0: absolutely and these changes have all been they were happening anyway weren't they in the classic car world they have been accelerated somewhat by the pandemic and the challenges that covid19 has brought us all and of course we were talking about the fbhvc uh, national historic vehicle survey a few weeks ago here on the podcast some more results from that to come in the uh, following weeks as we lead up to christmas and we'll share them with you as soon as we get them through from the federation but yeah definitely some interesting shifts and changes happening and as the mg car club we've got to work out how we adapt and change and offer things for members along the way and how the classic car scene as a whole needs to change in order to make sure that our historic vehicles remain on the road and that our freedoms to use them remain intact different and difficult times ahead i think
1: yeah definitely i think it would be interesting to have um maybe someone from classic and sports car or maybe someone like um alastair clemens and just see what what his take is on on the, the sort of scene um these days and what does make a club a club and yeah just just get a a different viewpoint from someone sort of on the on the outside looking in whereas we're on the sort of inside looking out Mm, indeed yes interesting stuff to
0: come and we'll cover it all here on the mg car club podcast and you're very welcome you're also very welcome to get in touch and tell us what we should be covering on this show as well we love to hear from you and uh, we did have a message left on the last episode uh, lots of support by the way adam for josh langstaff that we had back on episode 34 of this podcast lots of people enjoying the fact that we have such young enthusiasts of the mg brand joining us on the podcast and telling us their own stories of how their mg journey is beginning chris flemington enjoyed that last episode and said uh, also commenting on the classic classic car show in london that we were talking about that uh, he was really pleased that it was continuing and that uh, although he rarely goes to shows held indoors because he's a bit of a driver of cars uh, he thought it was a good move that that london classic car show had gone outdoors in order to ensure that it happens next year and he says uh, we wish everyone good luck for the next year in 2021 this is from chris flemington And hope that we might be able to get some people together with either Bertie B or Monty Midget or any other MGs. And he says, best Christmas wishes to everyone at Kimber House and all across the MG world. And to you, Chris and Terry Flemington, thanks for your messages. You can get your message on the podcast as well. MGpodcast.uk. Click the contact button on there, fill out the form, or leave us a voice message. It's all very easy. Now, 15 years ago, there was a momentous moment for the mg brand we didn't know it at the time but it does represent something of a milestone i think and something that we haven't covered on the 35 episodes of this mg car club podcast 15 years ago saw the passing of probably the last high performance mg the last high performance car to wear the mg badge and in my opinion that car was the mg zt 260 it was launched in 2003 and I can hear people already saying, "What what on earth is ZT260?" Let me tell you a little bit more. In 2003, there was a lot of change happening with the MG brand. Of course, the Rover 75 had been launched in 1998. And it was a car that itself was packed full of German equipment, engines and gearboxes. But then of course BMW sold Rover off and it came back to Longbridge, it came back to the UK the rover 75 continued of course but from there the mg zt arrived in 2001 because as we all know the z range of rovers with the mg badge were all designed by our friend peter stevens Uh, they were given that visual makeover to take the rover brand into a sporty arena once again it was at the same time when of course we had the x-power lmp2 cars at le mans and all sorts of uh, motorsport success the british touring car championship had mg's at the front of it as well so they wanted to go for these cars with a stiffer suspension they had larger wheels lower profile tires they had a sportier feel to drive as well as a result they weren't just badge engineering must get that out straight away mustn't we adam it wasn't just the badge that changed on the Z cars
1: no, I remember when, uh, back in 2001, I went to a local Rover dealer um, sniffing out a ZR with uh, the free insurance on the 105, and I remember winding the salesman up when I first walked in and said, oh, this is just a Rover with an MG badge stuck on it, and he immediately went in to explain every change that had been made to the car, which of course I already knew, but I was just having fun with the guy, he didn't realise it at the time, but no, the Zs were much, much more than just badge engineering
0: they were held back of course though because although a lot of engineering went into them and upgrades went into them to give them that sportier feel, what they were lacking was a big powerful engine because essentially the engines were based on what was in the rover based models as well so in 2003 along came the zt 260 and they wanted a v8 in it they wanted something that people could really lust after but mg didn't have access to a v8 there was nothing in the business at the time that they could have used so instead they went across the pond across the atlantic and asked ford if they could borrow their v8 the 4.6 liter v8 that was being used in the mustang gt The important thing that they also did here was because in the Mustang, that engine was configured to run rear wheel drive. So the ZT260s were changed from front wheel drive to rear wheel drive, something that makes them really, really unique and special to own. And they really started to just start to tread, I guess, on BMW M3 territory at the time. A lot of people don't realize this, but actually, they were one of the few MGs that were developed for performance outside of MG and actually they were developed by Prodrive who are just up the road from Abingdon just up the M40 there at Banbury although their um, place uh, in 2003 would have been the um, the test track at Kenilworth uh, but of course they'd already made their name producing those fantastic Subarus in the World Rally Championship they would go on to produce the Aston Martins that have done so well in British GT over the years but it was Prodrive that created the car and it's seen by many as the last performance mg it was the last big powerful brutish mg to wear the badge and it ended in 2005 that 4.6 liter ford v8 basically in a rover 75 that was now rear wheel drive it's amazing that we didn't all flock out and buy them isn't it really
1: <laughs> yeah i mean they were they were really potent um And when you then go a step further and add things like superchargers to them, you know, the amount of power that that V8 engine is capable of of developing is is insane. You know, I had the opportunity to drive a a supercharged uh, ZT um, V8 uh, a number of years ago. It's owned by John Newey at Summit Garage. And I've got to tell you, Wayne, that car is something else
0: well they do sound lovely of course v8's the best sounding of all the engines in my personal opinion i love them uh, but uh yeah not only do you get a fantastic soundtrack but you get that awesome engine as well and i'm not quite sure how many they made adam i think it was literally only two or three hundred they are very rare cars now and i just wonder whether they are bit of a jewel in the mg crown for classic car collectors that's perhaps being overlooked at the moment
1: i think so i think the they are very much um ripe for investment um because they are like you say so rare um you combine that sort of pretty bulletproof ford v8 with with mg rovers cars and you know you've got a you've got a really attractive package you know the zt is such a comfortable car to cruise in um i remember writing a feature about um john's v8s because on the same day i drove his sv i got straight out of the zt and into the sv um so it was it was a pretty special day um but i think i remember saying something at the time that it was you know the the zt was the kind of car that you could just go and cross continents in because it was just so comfortable and so adept um but with that punch and that power john telling me to um to hold my foot down right until um the car climbed through the rev range and then he would tell me when to change up um and it's always a bit nerve wracking driving someone else's car but when they're sat next to you and they're actively telling you to floor it and to keep going and to keep going and keep going i should point out we were on a private um test track doing this doing this drive um it's it's something else to feel that power build and that just that sense of awe you get from a big powerful saloon it was um yeah really something special if i had the money for one i'd be buying one now because the values are starting to grow um and i think they'll only go one way
0: the things that it was criticized for when it was new are the things that make it really nice now actually um especially the fact that it's the engine's a bit crude it is american ford v8 it's not exactly smooth it doesn't deliver the power in a particularly linear way as you've just described you've got to get get it on cam as you would say and uh it was criticized for all of those things when it was new because rover 75 types they like everything a bit smooth dear boy don't they Uh, but that's what exactly what makes it so brilliant to own as an enthusiast because you really get to feel and hear that engine and you know it's a bit of a challenge to drive and keep it pointing in a straight line as well so uh, all of the things it was criticized for then actually make it fantastic now and i did uh, just call up a couple of people i know with zt260s and asked them about them and, and just to see what they thought of their experience owning them and to a person they all loved it and thought it was a real wolf in sheep's clothing the couple of things that they did say to pass on to listeners was that the air conditioning in the cars as it was with all of those zt's is um, a bit of a weak point actually be careful of that Um, manual boxes were the most popular driver's choice but because of the power that engine puts through them and the standard clutches they were using the clutches need replacing quite often apparently but the main thing to watch out for was misfires obviously they're using ford components the ford coil packs that you would find on most fords actually they're pretty standard across the range but now they're sat in a very cramped engine bay on a very hot v8 and they do fail down to the heat that they're they're experiencing and the worst one is there's what there's one of the coil packs basically that sits under the throttle body where there's no air and it's a right pain to get at i've seen it i can see why it'd be a nightmare to remove and that's usually the one that fails so the advice is if you've got a misfire check them to make sure that you don't go out and buy all eight because it will be expensive it's usually the one that's failed due to heat sink issues uh, under the throttle body there so some useful tips if you do find a zt260 and lucky you if you do uh, some useful tips there if you fancy buying one but for me a car of many contrasts really because on the one hand it's a rough angry v8 but on the other hand it was shoehorned into the rover 75 but on the other hand to that which of course is a car designed with nostalgia at its core you know on the other hand of that it does look kind of racy and cool and sporty and like a young man's machine it's a car that's almost impossible to pigeonhole really isn't it
1: I think so. Got to remember that, you know, MG Rover did an incredible job because when the 75 was designed, it was, you know, it was funded by BMW. All that work was led by BMW. I know there were some suggestions that it was based on a BMW chassis and things like that, when it actually wasn't. Um, and and BMW's uh, brief for that car and for the Rover brand was for Rover to be to front wheel drive, what? bmw was to rear wheel drive so they wanted to build the best front wheel drive saloon in the world so the car was designed completely from the ground up to be a front wheel drive car so for for mg rover to then take that platform with you know the kind of loose change that you and i would find on the back of the sofa um and convert that platform from front wheel drive to rear wheel drive you know i remember hearing stories from from ian pogson um about them them chaining cars to the wall um and then pulling away from the wall and you know to to deal with axle tramping and things like that um you know to to build such a competent car with no budget and to to find that engine and is a tremendous achievement and you know as a testament to the engineers that worked at MG Rover and at Prodrive and and the teamwork they all put together
0: absolutely and as i say it could for many be the very last of the performance MG's ending as it did in 2005 after being in production for two years talking of performance mg's now then we go way back in time just shows you the diverse content that we serve up for you here on the mg car podcast <laughs> because we're going pre-war now back to the 1930s when cecil kimber was proving mg could be a performance brand and in the 1930s the way that you did that was to not go around putting big v8s in things oh no you went trialing and one of the most legendary trials was of course the london to exeter and the london to land's end now still running under the motorcycle club the mcc's format still using many of the same hills that they used at the turn of the 1900s and uh, a competition that represents one of the oldest forms of motorsport in the world now mg's history is inextricably linked to the history of trialing and one of those great names from trialing was toolman and morris toolman was the works mg driver for the 1935 mg pb cream cracker cars alongside many others his son jonathan toolman is on this podcast next the mg car club podcast the mg car club the mark of friendship to take advantage of our many membership benefits access to our centers and registers. And to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. <laughs> In 1935, Morris Toolman was a member of the winning Cream Cracker MG Works Trials Team, and they won both the 1935 Exeter Trial and the 1936 Sunback NWLMC Team Competition, competing in his much-modified MGPB. Now, the history of trialling is absolutely key – the pre-war history of mg and so it's a great honor to have morris's son jonathan toolman on the podcast with us as we settle in for a two-part conversation sharing the stories from that fantastic era now jonathan keeps the family tradition of trialing alive and still competes to this day so i started off by asking him about one of his own fond memories of trialing throughout the years
2: it happened to a good friend of mine who trials a 2CV, so not the most powerful (laughs) nor exciting vehicle in some ways. But a few years ago, um, a man and his family, entirely unconnected with the Exeter trial, uh, in a shiny new Range Rover, um, arrived at the bottom of Fingal Bridge section and... uh, demanded his right to drive the hill and the marshal said well you can see we've got a big event here I'm, I'm, I'm sorry it's not really um possible um do you mind awfully um if you turn around and, and go back and the range rover driver was really quite insistent and wouldn't take no for an answer so eventually the marshal had uh, really no, no option but said okay we'll hold the trial and um up you go so um, he set off up Fingal and managed to get the Range Rover stuck and the very next car was my good friend in his (laughs) 2CV who just drove round the Range Rover and got to the top of Fingal without any difficulty whatsoever Uh, To um, I think the dismay of this guy who just spent fifty grand or whatever on his Range Rover (laughs) (laughs) serves him right. (laughs) Indeed, indeed, absolutely. I always enjoy Fingal. Um, I have a photograph of my father on Fingal in 1934 in the car I now have. So what what became Cream Crackers One um but before it was a cream crasher um doing a timed climb of fingal now i've always thought now that would be fun wouldn't it the Mm. whole of fingal against the clock it would i've always
0: said about fingal that it feels more like a a rally stage than a trial stage actually so i can well see why they chose that one um although i wouldn't fancy hitting those storm drains flat out (laughs) (laughs) There wouldn't be much left of the car, I don't think, because they're quite harsh, aren't they?
2: I'm not sure whether they were there in 1934. Probably not. No, probably not. Um, I think trials actually have lost something over the years. Um, There were much more sociable occasions. Uh, I was reading a report on on one. I'm not sure whether it wasn't even the the experts' trial. But it, it started from Dunster, at 11 o'clock in the morning none of this first car away at 8 a.m or something that only modern one-day trials uh, seem to uh, uh, enjoy um uh, first car away at 11 a.m and they finished at 3 30 at a pub for afternoon tea all on a saturday so um (laughs) it was all you know frightfully civilised really there's a story of my my godfather, uh, a gentleman called Henry Porter Hargreaves who trialled a Nash a Fraser Nash um, and I'm not entirely sure whether this is true or not but he was doing what must have been a Land's End and he started from um, uh, Stratford I think it was yes from Stratford um, and he didn't really take to this uh, fiasco of driving around uh, Gloucestershire and uh, uh, Dorset and Somerset and goodness knows where else in the middle of the night, not really doing anything but just driving around the countryside in the middle of the night. So he used to hot-foot it down the main road um, to um, to Dunster Um arrive in time for a late dinner uh, at the main hotel in dunster um, have a, have a cigar and a brandy uh, retire to bed in clean lily white sheets get up reasonably early have a full breakfast then jump back into the Nash and go like Stink for Beggar's Roost and sort of catch up the trial. <laughs> I like that style. My father was much too sort of serious about, uh, uh, about the whole thing. Well, after all, uh, I, I guess he had to be really because um, MG were paying for everything. The idea in a previous podcast at the Southwest Centre of the MG Car Club. Uh, sort of own the cream crackers. I think is um, more than stretching it a little bit um, uh, away from the truth. Um, but what I find interesting uh, about the cream crackers is that when they were running the PA, so um, they had they had run in most of 1934 um, as MG Car Club Team A. Um, they didn't. They didn't have any any particular name, uh, and the team varied a little bit in um, in the early days. I think a guy called T. C. Taylor um, was in the team for one event, um, and uh, certainly Lewis Welsh, who of course became reserve driver for both the Cream Crackers and the Musketeers. And uh, um, later on, but he, he was in the team for, I think, the 34 Land's End, um, and then um, McDermott joined um, a little bit later. But it was very much an amateur team, and contrary to what well one well-known MG uh, historian has said, um, it was an entirely uh, amateur team, and the cars were definitely owned by um the drivers they weren't owned by abingdon with the possible exception of bastock's car bastock jb3854 is slightly strange it appears that he borrowed it off comps uh, competitions department um at abingdon but i i th- uh, he he must have bought it at some time because he held on to it um, for some time after he ceased to be a cream cracker driver, um, but uh, my, somehow my father managed to negotiate um, a deal with Abingdon, um, and they they paid all all of the expenses really of the team. Um, And the records I've got, there's a huge amount of money flying in both directions because uh, Abingdon didn't pay for all of the maintenance on on the cars, Um, certainly not. Um, They gave them a discount, but uh, so so the drivers owed, owed Abingdon money for the work done on the cars. But Abingdon owed the drivers money because they'd agreed to pay entry fees and hotel fees and petrol en route and uh, meals taken during the event and that sort of thing. Um, so there were there were checks uh, flying in um, in both directions, um, and of course it's well reported, and I have some of the original um, d- uh, documents to support it that. Uh, the um, the drivers were not that impressed with their PAs when they first caught them in um, 1934, because they'd all been running J2s before then. Um, and of course, the PA was heavier than the J2, and with an extra bearing, which you'd think was a good thing in, in the engine. Um, there was actually more uh, friction horsepower uh, lost in in the engine. So, so the engines were actually slightly less powerful than the J-Type in a heavier car so the performance wasn't as good Um, and the drivers uh, whinged about this so Abingdon had them back and put them on a weight reduction exercise uh, and stripped off everything that was not considered absolutely essential Um, and the cars appeared this is December 1934 just um, in time for the Exeter uh, which was, well, immediately after Christmas, anyway. Um, and uh, apparently the, the cars emerged looking sort of decidedly naked. Um, but one of the things, um, and uh, I, I, I know the uh, efficacy of this, they removed the windscreens. Um you've probably taken the windscreen off a P-type but they're immensely heavy Mm. Um, so uh, it was a prime candidate Um, so they appeared without windscreens um, and unfortunately the night of the Exeter it poured with rain and um, I have a photograph of TJ5000 on the Exeter that year without its windscreen there's a little aero screen for My father's lady passenger, (laughs) but nothing for the driver, Um, and I don't know how he coped. I mean, he he doesn't appear to be wearing goggles or um, or anything, so it must have been really really
0: tough and to put that into context for people who maybe don't have experience of the Exeter trial you are driving through the early part of january and there are road sections in between the trial sections and it is cold up on the moors at that time of the year and especially uh, when it, it gets foggy or frosty or sometimes we've even had snow so it would have been quite grueling wouldn't
2: it uh, yes it would yes uh, actually of course in those days the exeter uh, was in december it was between christmas and new year um but uh, obviously the conditions are virtually the same and uh it, it must have been uh, it must have been quite a challenge um i don't know whether um such an experience uh, uh cost my father his his girlfriend um because uh, uh, whoever the lady was, and I have actually subsequently found out who the lady was who accompanied my father on the 34 Exeter. Uh, she didn't materialize into my mother. That was somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> somebody else. But um, No, actually, she did manage to put up with it because she appears in photographs uh, right into 1936. Um, so uh, that, um, that didn't put her off. Uh, but the weight reduction exercise definitely uh, worked because they got gold medals when I think it was a very tough trial that year, and I think there were only thirteen or fourteen gold medals out of the entire entry and i I can't off the top of my head tell you what the entry was, but it was you know two hundred and eighty or something or other um so um uh but the um The loss of the windscreens did prove to be a bit more than they could uh, stomach under those conditions. And for the next trial, I have a photograph, the windscreens were back on
0: again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And learnt their lesson, obviously, by then. So, you've described there how the drivers of the cars owned the cars, but did they buy them from MG with the specific purpose of going trialling? Or were these cars that they owned and they got in touch with mg and were
2: approached to go trial. and how did that relationship start ah the difficult questions um certainly in my father's case uh he was he had already been an abingdon customer i mean my grandfather had an 1880 uh my father's first mg was a m-type sportsman's coupe um and then he had uh, his J two. Um and it does appear I don't have any documentary evidence whatsoever, but it there is there is some suggestion that uh Abingdon would part exchange J twos for P types. Um and I think uh, a number of um of the J twos traded in in the early part of 1934, um, actually then went to, um, to America because Miles Collier, who had the um, had rights in the USA for, to, to sell MGs, um, apparently came over to Abingdon and was sort of demanding some P-types. Um which Abingdon weren't able to to produce, and they fobbed him off with some second hand j twos <laughs> <Right. laughs> um so it's possible uh, that um uh, dad's j two um went to the states um uh, with uh, with miles collier um my father must have known somebody in the lancashire uh, licensing department because he had a number of nice number plates um, and his J2 number plate was was the best of uh, of all of them it was TJ2 so it was Tormin's J2 um, and uh, many well a, f- a few years ago now 30 years ago now I inquired of Mike Hawke, of course, who knew more about J2s than anybody else on the planet, um, about my father's J2. And he told me, he said, there are two J2s, both legally registered with Swansea. How this can possibly happen, I don't know. But he said, there are two J2s, both legally registered as TJ2. Hmm. And, um, uh, obviously some goof up somewhere. Mm. Um, but, uh, so I said to him, well, which one was my dad's old car? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, neither of them. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but dad had raced his J2 at, uh, Brooklands. Brooklyn's um in uh, 1933 oh. um and any car that's raced at brooklyn's is worth you know 10 grand more than its sister car that yeah. didn't so, yeah. uh, i can see there was an attraction to um claim that um somebody's car was was actually dad's old um mm-hmm. j2
0: so presumably that would be where your dad met cecil kimber for the first time and the relationship began is that right
2: uh well yes it, um yes it must have been yeah. um that's right um and uh he um he and his uh, mates i mean they were doing triangles because they were fun um and uh, i mean you you think about the 1930s um the sort of entertainments were somewhat limited mm-hmm. um no television uh, not a huge amount of r- uh, radio and things, um, and uh, so um, trials were obviously an attractive form of um, entertainment and sport, um, and uh, not bad value for money. I guess you had to be reasonably well off to afford a car at all in 1930 in the 1930s. Um, my, my my father's very first trial was, I think it was 1926, um, a London to Edinburgh trial, um, which would be 400 and something miles, yeah. um, and there was one observed section, can you really? imagine that? one observed section which was in north yorkshire wow section called Askrig, which is
0: in tarmac these days yeah Askrig of course is where all creatures great and small was filmed and 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 it was set so uh yeah you uh, anyone who likes that tv program will recognize that place off the telly but uh and this is the difference between trialing then and trialing now trialing now has become a kind of almost adrenaline sport hasn't it whereas back then it was really just proving the simple thing that these cars could make it from london to exeter from london to edinburgh from london to land's end given the state of the roads and in the late 1920s in particular when that first trial would have taken place that he took part in the roads would have been in an appalling state it would have been hard enough just to have covered the mileage
2: wouldn't it absolutely i I believe uh, that the very first London to Edinburgh trial um, which uh, took place in 1904 was simply a run from London to Edinburgh just straight up the Great North Road the, the A1 um, and there wouldn't have been any hills or anything because in 1904 you can imagine um, you know, solid tyres, acetylene lamps um, it it was a challenge just simply to make the run. and of course, the proper name for these trials are reliability trials. and it was really a trial of the of the reliability of the car and the durability of the driver uh, rather than um, skill I don't think was so much involved. Um, and then somebody at uh, one of these very early trials turned up with uh, a car with the newfangled pneumatic tires <laughs> which was an utter disaster because the great north road of course it was all horse-drawn traffic okay. and apparently uh, the whole road was a, a a sea of nails from horses hooves and this poor guy had, had about eight punctures before he got to Hemel Hempstead <laughs> <laughs> incredible
0: well i've actually found the thanks to my friends at the mcc the 1934 program for the london to exeter trial and uh, your dad's car was number uh, 190 uh, running in a uh, a group of mg's actually 188 through to 192 were all midgets and uh, 1 magnet Uh, 191 driven by f thatcher intriguingly actually uh, just a few cars behind them when they left the start line was actually a bugatti just show the sort of diversity of cars that you would have seen out on the reliability trials and and as we mentioned these were these were long distance reliability trials just to prove you could do the mileage so unlike today where it sort of starts in devon and goes around a, a circuit this actually started from virginia water surrey on friday december the 28th 1934 at half 10 in the evening and finished at the Blandford crown hotel on the uh, 29th of december 1934 uh, from midday onwards they say the finishing time so i'd love to know when the last person came in it doesn't say but uh, <laughs> they're very they're at great pains though the mcc here to uh, point out that the event is not a race <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> we, right. which Quite is right. uh, is good advice even today um but looking down the entry list there are a huge number of mg's entered Um, not just the cream crackers but loads of sort of what i'd call privateer entries there are standards in there that bugatti i mentioned fraser nash's it was a motorsport that manufacturers were very much engaged with as cecil kimber was to prove their vehicles reliability and durability i always liken it from what I can understand, to so like the British Le Mans,
2: wasn't it? In many ways, I certainly think so, and it, it attracted um, a great following. And if you, if you look at the uh, motoring magazines of the day, there would be several pages devoted. There would be a page or so of uh, preview of the event, and then several pages and dozens of photographs uh, the week after the um, the event, and a whole page of. Results and things, and and certainly the manufacturers uh, used it as good publicity for their um, for their products. So, uh, doubtless um, Cecil Kimber um, justified the cost of uh, running two trials teams um, on the basis, or it uh, probably came out of the publicity budget. I um, uh, I imagine, and they produced posters. Um, I have uh, two or three of the original p- posters, for which um, uh, were distributed uh, widely, apparently, even around the globe, uh, of MG's um, successes in these events. The MG Car Club Podcast
0: Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co well that was part one there adam of our look into the toolman story and the story of the cream cracker mg's here on the mg car club podcast i had goosebumps listening to jonathan telling us some of those stories you'll be able to hear part two of that interview on next week's podcast but an amazing and pretty much untold part of mg's amazing history isn't it
1: yeah brilliant I, I personally can't wait to hear part two um just a really good story and like you said it's always it's always great when we can share something that perhaps not a lot of people will know um from mg's history so no brilliant and great to hear that uh, jonathan's still
0: very much involved in trialing today and i still see him out on the extra trial albeit in a uh, japanese comfy car now but uh great to see <laughs> that the uh, the family tradition lives strong second part of that in next week's MG Car Club podcast. Now, onto the shop Adam, and of course I mentioned this at the beginning of the show and we'll mention it again now. You can go onto our shop shop.mg I'm typing it in shop.mgcc.co.uk. When you arrive on the homepage there's a big green box saying Christmas gifts, click here. Click that and you'll be given a presentation of some of the most beautiful mg gifts you can ever imagine buying Uh, we've got everything in there from pre-boxed gift sets and these are in a little cardboard box with some decoration in there a gift label and a whole selection of gifts uh, right the way up to our big 90th anniversary gift set which has everything you need in there for the celebration of 90 years of the mg car club through to our little stocking fillers including our chocolate spanners and wrenches they're all in there uh, christmas decorations and cards also on the shop for sale at the moment you can get your MGZT baubles if you like <laughs> uh, they're all on there uh, christmas gifts for her and uh, there's some lovely jewellery and watches and things like that going on on the shop currently christmas gifts for kids on there of course the uh, including the top trump's cards that are always popular at this time of the year to be added into stockings across the land and christmas gifts for him including those wonderful gorgeous mg themed uh, dials gauges made into clocks we love that so have a look shop.mgcc.co.uk don't get queuing up in tk max for a load of rubbish you don't really want and the people that you're giving it to don't really want either get on the mg car club shop and make sure that the gifts you buy this christmas are perfect for that mg fan in your life see i could be on one of them adverts adam there you go, see, mate, you got the,
1: what is it, they call it, the gift of the cow? <laughs> apparently, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's been a lot of chat over here uh, in the UK, uh, well, particularly in England, um, about the fact that shops are going to be allowed to trade for 24 hours a day, apparently, to try and spread out people sort of gathering in shops and the risks that come with that during the, during the pandemic. With the car club, you don't need to do any of that. You can stay nice and safe, snuggled up in front of the fire, and, and you can shop when you like, you know it just makes sense job done
0: easily done you see we look after you here on the mg car club podcast just go online to shop.mgcc.co.uk click the christmas gifts button and we'll sort your christmas shopping out for you it will just arrive on the doorstep all packed and ready to go all you've got to do is wrap it and bung it under the christmas tree and sit back and enjoy a sherry or something like that it's like having your own personal Santa, only instead of writing to Lapland, you write off to Abingdon via shop.mgcc.co.uk. Well, it's December. We can get Christmassy. And I'm about to go and put my tree up now. So, from me and another MG Car Club podcast, cheerio. See you soon, guys. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.